You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. All right, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. My name is Richard, if you don't know who I am, and I have the great privilege of closing out our summer series. Now, I know for some of you, hearing summer and close in the same sentence is not a happy thought, but um, yeah, we're at that time again where next weekend will be Labor Day weekend, and then schools go back, universities go back, and uh, a different shift in the rhythm of our, of our city and the GTA. And so, um, but Throughout the summer, we've been journeying uh, in a series that's called Ecclesia, which has been looking, it's the Greek word for the, the word that the New Testament of Jesus referred to as the church. And particularly, we've been looking at a passage in Acts 2 that talks about how the church, the early church, the earliest form of the church, uh, really devoted themselves to some key practices. We've been distilling six key practices. And so um, what I want to do today is actually go... Uh, uh, go backwards a bit and go to Jesus himself and see what he said about the church. And so before we get to that passage in Matthew 16, do you remember the first church you were a part of, if you've been part of a church before? I was thinking about this as I was reflecting on the series and coming to this message today. And uh, I've been part of four church communities. And my first one is when we moved to South Africa when I was four years old, we joined uh, what was called the Church of England in South Africa, basically an offshoot of anarchy. Anglicanism, not high Anglicanism, but had Anglican roots. And so that was my first experience of church as a, as a young child and growing up there. And then, um, in my preteen years, I joined a, uh, East Claremont Congregational Church. A lot of my friends had a really good youth group there. And so we kind of went there and, and that was incredibly formative in the, the few years just before I entered high school. Then I entered high school and I stopped going to church and I fell away from the Lord. And I think those two are connected. Um, and then in my first year at university, I had dramatic coming back to the Lord and the church that I joined was His People Christian Church, which is now our Every Nation Church in Cape Town. And that was a church I've been part of for the longest time and incredibly formative on me. Um, I met my wife there, our kids were born and dedicated, and uh, we uh, that's where I entered into full-time ministry. And then the fourth church is this church, Every Nation GTA, and maybe my favorite out of all of them, but you probably think I have to say that. But certainly been an incredibly formative experience in my life. And so maybe, you know, throughout the day, you might want to reflect upon that. If, if you've grown up in church and all the different experiences and what did you, what it impressed upon you. But we're going to go to Jesus today and we're going to hear him uh, speak about the church. And so join me in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. We're going to read this and then unpack a little bit what it says. It says this, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some said John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? What a great question. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, or another word for that is Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, here's our verse today, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. Now that verse 18, there's a little bit of a, 
uh, interplay there because the, the both the Greek and the Aramaic, Aramaic is what Jesus and the disciples spoke, Greek is what the New Testament is written in. Both Peter and Rock are very similar in word. And so there's been a lot of debate about how to read this particular verse, this chap, this verse 18. Um, is it talking about that on Peter, literally Peter himself, the church will be built, which is probably more the Roman Catholic view in seeing that Peter was the first pope of the church? Or was it really referring to Peter's confession of who Jesus is as the Messiah, the Son of God? And I think probably a happy medium is, is both. I think both it is the confession that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah that the church is built on. But we can't underestimate how much the church, the early church, was built upon the foundation of the apostles, of which Peter is very primary. If we look in Acts, we see he takes a very primary role in the leading of the church. Nevertheless, what I want to get to today is um, that verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. What Jesus was one of the first instances of this word ecclesia in the New Testament. And, um, and I want to connect it to the importance of understanding where they are. Now, it's lost on you and I because we don't know the geography of the time 2,000 years ago. But it was very significant for the people that lived there. Now, I had the privilege of sitting with uh, a new friend who had been on many trips to Israel this past week. And, um, and I said, hey, I'm going to be preaching on this verse, on this particular passage of where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and p- particularly has his interaction with, with Peter. And it says there in Caesarea Philippi, is there any significance? And he just lit up. <laughs> He's like, oh, let me tell you the significance of this place. So between him and some of the commentaries I read, it really is a significant place. And it really has great meaning for what Jesus is saying in that verse 18. Now, this particular place, Caesarea Philippi, was about a city that was about 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. It was very near the source of the Jordan River, and it was known in the ancient world for being a a place of worship, from Baal worship to in the Greek god of Pan and even Caesar. In fact, they changed the name Caesarea to uh, honor Caesar. Now, I want to put a picture before you. This is the picture my new friend uh, sent me and said, hey, when I was on a tour, we actually went to this place. It's pretty much probably the place that Jesus is while he's saying these words. And it's a spring. It's a well-known spring, the Benaiah Spring. And in the background, you might see there's like a cave. And that cave was dedicated for temple worship to the different gods. Uh, in this particular time, it was probably the god, Greek god of Pan, but later on it was also the Greek god of Zeus was was worshipped there. And so this is a pr- place of inc- tremendous worship, cultic worship. It was also considered, Caesarea Philippi, this place here, is also that spring was also considered the gates to the underworld, the gates to, to gods, where gods were birthed where spiritual beings were birthed. So Jesus and his disciples are literally standing at the place known as the gates of the underworld or the gates of Hades, or maybe in your Bible it says the gates of hell. And so in that context, with the disciples and Jesus knowing full well what this place means and the worship of other gods, he says something profound. He says that he literally will call a people to himself, will build his church, and the gates of death, hell, evil, the underworld, old worldviews, everything that would come against the church won't prevail against it. Kingdoms will come and go, empires will come and go, but the church will prevail. In 2,000 plus years of history, Jesus was right. I mean, fancy that, right? Empires have come and gone. Strong. The Roman Empire was dominant. No one would conceivably think that someday the Roman Empire would fall. Empires have come and gone. Political leaders, powerful leaders have come and gone. And the church has gone through ebbs and flows. Not perfect, 
The church continues to this day. So what does Jesus mean when he refers to the church? The church is ecclesia. This is the, the word that we've been using, the series title that we've been using throughout. And it literally is just the Greek word. And it's a word that was common. It's got no real spiritual connotation to it except for what Jesus now puts onto it. It just means a, an assembly, a gathering of people, an assembly. And it's steeped in also Jewish tradition. In fact, the assembly, when you, when, if you, um, know the, the history of Israel, when they get delivered from Egypt, they're kind of a wandering people. And God calls Moses and he calls them to be his people. He calls them to be an assembly, a gathering of people that God was going to do amazing things through. And so at Mount Sinai, they had this dramatic encounter and God calls a people to himself through which he can use to bless the nations. And so this idea of assembly is common in that time. But now Jesus is going to take it one step further. And so for the Jewish people, so much of your identity was wrapped up in, in primarily two things, the temple and Torah. The temple was where heaven and earth uh, where God's space and our space invaded, and the temple was a sacred place. It was the worship of God, and it was it was God invading earth. And then the Torah, we look at the Torah, the Ten Commandments, we, th- we look at a lot of laws. And it is a lot of laws, but it's also shaping a people of how to live. This is the kind of people that God wants us to be in order. This is what sets us apart. And so Jesus comes along and says, I am going to build an assembly, not on the temple and Torah, but on the worship and the way of Jesus. Jesus being the Messiah, the revelation of Jesus confessing that Jesus is not just a great teacher, prophet, whatever you might think he is. He's all those, but he's more than that. He has God himself in the flesh. And as people get that revelation, that they worship him and they follow in the way of Jesus, right? So building on the Torah. In fact, in Acts, the first Christians, before they were called Christians, they were often referred to as, are you of, are you of those that belong to the way? That's how they identify the way of Jesus. And so I like what Matt Chandler, some of you know that name, uh, um, well-known pastor in the States and an author. He says, a church is a community where individuals are transformed and empowered to join God's corporate family and participate in God's plan to reconcile all things to himself. Why I particularly like about this is got the ingredients of what we really uh, refer to as well, of what it means to be a disciple and then what it means to be uh, a church and assembly of disciples. And there's the three components. You see the three ingredients here. It's personal transformation, right? You've got to have an encounter. You've got to have that in your personal transformation with God that leads you into community formation, okay? That we don't just stay me and Jesus. That's not the way that Jesus pulls you in assembles you into a gathering called his church community that community is there to form us that leads then into missional participation that we get to join god now and what he's doing in the world we get to join god specifically in what he's doing in our neighborhoods as the church as is called our people and so we refer to as worship community and mission that a personal transformation, our relationship with the lord but then it's community formation our relationship with one another so vital and then um participating in mission. It's how we interact with the people and the world that God loves so very much around us. And so this is all the result of the good news and the gospel that Jesus came to preach. And so Paul, later in a, in a letter, uh, he writes to the Ephesian church, he says it like this, and God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so the church is referred to as the body of Christ. One of the dominant metaphors of how to think about the church. It's a dynamic movement, the body of Christ, richly brings the invisible Christ into visibility for the world. And so I want to do a very quick, very quick um, look at the church through time. And simply the reason that there's so much detail that I'm not going to cover here, and it's really interesting if you enjoy history, and even if you don't enjoy history, um, it's really interesting and I think appropriate to go back and see how the church developed over time, how the church today stands on the shoulders of the church yesterday. And so I want to look at some key things and look firstly at the early church. Now, we've been looking at the early church, but the early church was really over about a three-century period, from the first to the fourth century. And it was an incredibly formative period. You're, they're developing a new identity, not just as Jewish people, but now Jewish Christians following in the way of the Messiah and worshiping Jesus, no longer going to the physical temple, but seeing that Jesus really is the embodiment of that temple and we can worship him anywhere. And um, <coughs> excuse me, it sets set the tone for the rest of the history of the church. In fact, today we are still under the influence of some of the decisions they made at that time. Um, a few Sundays back, uh, Bert referenced Rodney Stark, the church historian, and I want to pull up a quote again from him. And just the impact that Christianity and the church, particularly in this period, had is is mind blowing. It's hard to underestimate, uh, sorry, hard to overestimate the influence the church had on the known world. Then he says it like this: Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. Some of the earliest hospitals were started by Christians. Um, that word hospital comes from our word hospitality. They just brought people. They had been personally transformed by Jesus and they, as a community, formed one another and allowed people to come in that had been cast out by society, elevated the status of everyone, women and children in particular, because they were made in the image of God and um, nothing short of revolutionary, really, at that time. But then we go on to a key turning point. It's called the Christian Empire. Around about the 4th of the 5th century, something amazing happened. It was the com a conversion of Emperor Constantine, and things changed radically. The persecuted church now becomes the tolerated church and eventually the official religion of the Roman Empire. I mean, who would have thought about that? This little cult that started with a handful of believers in the first century is now the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, probably a Christian nationalist's greatest dream. But, a little asterisk there, it was probably one of the worst times for the church went into. Uh, the change wasn't easy for a lot of Christians, and they responded in many different ways. For some, they were so grateful that no longer were they being persecuted, they were so grateful that they lost their ability to be a prophetic witness to the government and the society around them. They were just so grateful and kind of began to get more formed by the culture than the Christ and Christianity that they'd been birthed into. Uh, others totally fled, literally fled to the desert. And you see the desert mothers and fathers see a monastic kind of life taking place. Um, and then, and then uh, others 
Well, this is what another historian says, Justo Gonzalez. Another group was like this. The most outstanding leaders of Christianity took a middle position, didn't flee and didn't get absorbed into the culture. They continued living in the cities and taking part of the life of society, but with a critical stance or a prophetic stance. It was thus that finally freed from the constant threat of persecution, the church produced some of its greatest teachers. Think of St. Augustine comes out of this time, Jerome, Ambrose, John Chrysostom, just to name a few, some of the uh, earliest church fathers and some of their theology that once again still influences and, uh, and shapes us today. But it was, a, it was a difficult time for the church. It was a difficult time for Christianity. Um, and power became involved and corruption came with that. And so in the 6th century, one of the major shifts happened with a guy called Gregory the Great. It was the fall of the Roman Empire. This empire that was so dominant fell and it was the beginning of what was referred to as the Dark Ages. But what really saved Christianity and civilization at that time as well was the monastic tradition, was some of these desert mothers and fathers that went back and brought back a mysticism or a transcendence to Christianity that brought back some of the, the earliest types of teachings of Jesus, and it really helped the church and civilization survive through those very dark times. Fast forward about a 500 years, and you're going to see this 500 years pattern come, and it's quite significant. In the 11th century, we have what's called the Great Schism. This is where the church split east and west, and so today you have the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic. That's what happened in the 11th century, and you can read up as why they split and all that kind of stuff, but I'm just giving you a 3,000-foot view here of history. And then 500 years later comes a guy called Martin Luther, you might have heard that name, it's called the Great Reformation. And he had begun to see, he was a German monk, Martin Luther, and he began to see just the corruption in the church, particularly the Catholic church at that time. And, um, and he began to protest against that. And he's famous for uh, nailing his 95 theses, 95 things that he wanted to address in the church that time. He nailed it to the church door. And in his protest was the birth of the Protestant uh, denomination or Protestant Christianity, if you will. And so now you have Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestantism, which is basically what it is to the three major Protestant Protestantism in the last five years, 500 years has given birth to many other different denominations. By the way, away from the Protestant tradition. So thank you, Martin Luther. Um, Church of England came out of Anglicanism, Methodism, Luther, all these kind of things, eventually, um, Pentecostal and Charismatic, of which we're a part to today. So maybe that's helpful if you had never heard of that or why there's so many different denominations or, you know, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, what does it all mean? But, what I want to highlight here, and we've got one more to come, but before we get there, what I want to highlight here, each major shift that happened, each disruption, each uncomfortable kind of dissonant moment that the church and Christianity went to resulted in at least three things, historians tell us. One, a new, more vital form of Christianity emerged. Secondly, there was a renewal of the church and new expressions of faith and practice. And thirdly, there was a dramatic growth and spread of the Christian faith. It was almost like things had to die in order for new life to take part, to, to give birth. It's, it's kind of like a pattern. We see it in, in nature today, right? And it's so, as the church kind of lost its, um, uh, potency, it's like certain things had to die in order for God to bring new life. And as new life was brought in, um, we see a dramatic growth and spread of Christianity. And again, like I said, it would, if you look at church history, the history of the church is complicated. I mean, we've even seen it in this nation, right? We've seen the Pope's visit this summer. We've seen some of the, the hard things, the dark times, some of the um, terrible things that the church has been involved in. 
And we have to hold that intention with all the incredible things that the church has and Christianity is, um, has produced for us. Almost every conceivable uh, major endeavor from science to education to medicine to the fact that you and I know a thing called human rights today uh, is because of this little fledgling movement called Jesus followers that becomes the church. Um, we have the church to really thank for that. And at the same time, recognize the church also had some incredibly dark moments. And the reality is in the future, the church is probably going to have a bit of both still. And so what came out of the Reformation, where the Reformed Christians, is this phrase. It's a Latin phrase. It's called Ecclesia Semper Reformanda. And it literally just means the church always reforming. And it's the idea, just like us, we should always be reforming, always be looking at our beliefs and our practices, always be looking to see, are they are they true to following Jesus? Are they true to the worship of Jesus? And that's the desire. And so we see the church does that. It grows. It's healthy. When the church forgets that, gets stuck in its ways, it kind of dies. It becomes a bit like anemic and inward looking. And God has to like jolt it. And so I don't know, but if you've noticed, but almost every 500 years, first century, sixth century, the the 11th century, the 16th century, and guess what? 500 years from the 16th century, the 21st century, you and I are living in probably now what is another major shift in Christianity and the church. And it started already in the late 1990s and 2000s, and we're still yet to see what it finally is going to rest in. But no doubt, what you and I are looking back, a few hundred, they're going to look back and say something happened there. A new type of a new forms and expression of the church um, is emerging, and we're kind of in the middle of it. And so what the what's happening now, you say, well, where's things heading? It's a great question. I don't know. But there's convergence of three things here that I think is really important for us. One is this great emergence. So we're in that right now. It's a fundamental change within Christianity uh, in conjunction with incredible changes in our social, political, economic, cultural, and geopolitical shifts that are happening in this world. Combine that with the second great uh, shift that's happening is what's being called the Great Departure, at least here in North America. Uh, it's not necessarily true for all around the world, but at least here in North America is what's called a Great Departure. In other words, that the religious affiliation of older generations like the boomers, I think uh, Statistics Canada data recently confirmed that the generational gap, finding that religious affiliation is at about 85%. That's a pretty big uh, margin there amongst Canadian boomers that they're affiliated with some kind of religious practice compared to 32% amongst millennials. And so we see a generational gap here. We see a, a, there's no, no, not a transference of uh, religion or Christianity to the next generation. And then thirdly, we have this great emergence, this shifting, these, these cultural shifts that are happening. Uh, younger people seem to be less interested in, in the church and that kind of thing. And we get thrust into a pandemic. And so all the pandemic did, I mean, not all the pandemic did, let me, <laughs> pandemic did a lot. But the pandemic just accelerated some of these things that were already happening, didn't cause them, but just accelerated some of these changes. Your workplace was probably going to go more remote in 10, 15 years. That 15 years just changed within one year. And so if you feel like you've had whiplash, um, absolutely you've had whiplash because we've seen about they estimate about 15 to 20 years change has happened in the period of two years. Fundamental change has happened. Think about this. Like, think about things that have changed. Like, think about war in Europe. You know, think about, it was conceivable three years ago that you would, 
have to wait six months to a year if you bought a car, or that your computer may not have a chip that's necessary for it to run, or gas prices, and, and just begin to think of all the things that are happening. So we're in a time of just great shifts, destabilization, instability, where's the future, uncertain, how are you feeling about that? And so I come back to Jesus' words, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, worldviews, empires, all these shifts will not prevail against it. Yeah, we're going to get some buffing. We're going to get some uh, reforming that's necessary in the church. I think we're in a season now of the church is reforming how to be a better ecclesia, how to be better followers of Jesus, how to be better lovers of our world and our neighbors. Uh, I think all that's happening and it's coming at a great cost, but I think it's so necessary for the health and the vibrancy of the church. As one leadership guru, Kerry Newoff, many of us know that he's a Canadian. He says, change is an inevitable, irrelevancy isn't. And so that's the challenge, I think, for the church now, Big C Church, and that's the challenge for our church now is, will we adapt, uh, not just in line with where society is, but will we adapt with the Spirit of God? Clearly, the Spirit of God is wanting to breathe new life and vitality into the church and into our church. But change is hard, right? Even good change, you know, and if your kids finally grow up and they go off to university, that change is to be celebrated, but it's hard. And so, all change is hard, but change is necessary. Change is inevitable. Irrelevancy isn't. We don't want to be irrelevant as the ecclesia, the call out. So lastly, I want to finish this off very quickly and look at the, what kind of the church that Jesus builds. Actually, very quickly, there's an image here that I don't want to put up here. Um, and so you might say, whoa, is there, this is a great crisis. Is Christianity shrinking? No, Christianity isn't shrinking as much as it's shifting. I want to put this demographic up, this graphic before you. And it's basically tracking the last 120 years. And so if you look at the bottom there, uh, almost 82% of Christians found themselves in the Northern Hemisphere, in Europe, uh, North America. Fast forward to today, that's almost reversed. Two-thirds of Christians are what's found in what's called the Global South. And I'm so thankful for that because I think our brothers and sisters in the Global South and Asia and Africa and South America have a lot to bring to the church, have a lot to bring to our Christianity. And I'm excited for that. And I'm excited that we're in a city and we're in a country that welcomes the nations of the world. I mean, at one time in our church, our little church, church in downtown Toronto, something like 27 nations represented. And I think that's significant. I think God's called us to be and live up to our name, to be every nation, to be every nation in Canada, across Canada, and to be every nation in the greater Toronto area. So I'm excited for God calling us to do something nearly impossible, right? To bring different cultures and people together, but for Jesus. Jesus continues on, and I think it's very significant that this happens pretty close after where they've just had this encounter with Jesus, the gates of Hades at that place. Jesus continues in Matthew chapter 16 and says this, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The church Jesus builds. Now, if you know anything about Peter, Peter was probably the worst choice to build anything upon, let alone the foundation of the church. And yet Jesus says, Peter, you're going to be significant. And so take heart. There's room for all of us to be in this messy thing called the church. Peter has gone from confessing Jesus, you're the Messiah. And Jesus acknowledges, man, that is, that is from heaven. Flesh and blood, my father's revealed it to you. Amazing. Um, personal transformation. And then just in a few short breaths later, Peter's taking the Messiah aside and rebuking him. No, this is not, a, I don't like what you're saying. This is how I think it should pan out. And so, G, so Peter uh, confesses the true identity of Jesus, but still has a faulty understanding of all that means. Peter wants a triumphant Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I'm a suffering Messiah. Peter wants the kingdom without the cross. We're like Peter. We might, and this is the danger, we might correctly identify Jesus for who he is, but we might make Jesus in our image. And I think part of that is what needs to be reformed. We need to get back to the true sense of being followers of Jesus. The Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus, the triumphant but suffering Messiah, that we too want the kingdom to come, but know that that kingdom will come as we lay down our lives, as we lay down and pick up our cross. And so the church Jesus builds is a triumphant church, but it is a triumphant church through sacrifice and through laying down their lives. You know, in many ways, we see that Jesus literally lays down his life for the church, for his bride, for you and I. And then in return, the kind of church that Jesus builds is those men, women, boys and girls who in turn lay down their lives for Jesus and allow Jesus to use them. And so Jesus builds his church as we are faithful to be his disciples and to make disciples of Jesus. And we need to do that together as a community. Eugene Peterson Love it. He has a way with words. I wish I had this way of words, but he says it like this. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from immersion and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. Community, not the highly vaunted individualism of our culture, is the setting in which Christ is at play. The church matters to you. The church matters to Jesus. And for all it's good, it's bad, it's ugly, the church is here to stay. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the church's primary vehicle that Jesus wants to build his kingdom and bring his kingdom into the world. And you and I are called to be part of that as we take up our cross and lay down our lives in worship to Jesus and in sacrifice to the people that Jesus loves. We begin to see that. And so as we close, I think the challenge before us as a church is what does it mean and look like then to be this kind of worshiping community on mission together at this time and place it's our time it's our generation if we look back at church history in the future church history we look back at this time you and i get to play a part in that maybe a small part maybe some will have a big part but we get to play a part in that we get to hand something off to the next generation i truly hope it will be a great handoff what does worship, community, and mission mean for us? Worship means to love and follow Jesus and pattern your life 
after his life. Community, it means to do life with and love and care for one another within intentionality. Mission, it means to love those around us who don't follow Jesus with courage and compassion. And so we've been focusing on the early church over the summer, and particularly we've been focusing on six practices that they gave themselves to. You can go back and look at those messages. And it's important that we look at those practices because what we do continually shapes us. Uh, those six practices, we looked, reinforce worship, community, and mission. They devoted themselves to deep relationship, to learning scripture or truth, to joyous worship, to sacrificial, radical service, to communal prayer, and to winsome witness. So the question I leave for you and the question I leave for us is, who am I becoming for what I'm doing? Who are we becoming as the church by what we continually do? After all, we become what we repeatedly do. And so that's the great challenge and the great opportunity before us to be this community, to be this ecclesia that has Jesus at the center and follows in the way of Jesus, that loves God, loves one another, and loves the world around us. And these practices help us become that kind of community and that kind of people. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.